celebrating success, learning from legends, and growing poppies. This is Talk Poppy Talk with Grace Lewis. Kia ora and welcome to Tall Poppy Talk. Today we have Dr. Devin Tan. He specializes in child and forensic psychiatry. He's helping young people and the adults in their lives by equipping their minds with the tools to navigate life well. Devin has so many resources that complement the work already being done by teachers and parents, and his knowledge is ever-growing. He's working to make accessible the mental models to turn emotional chaos into strength and has distilled the core tenets of emotional intelligence into his course, The Practice of Empathetic Discipline. He explains throughout his work that there can be no health without mental health and that with good mental models and a good dose of empathy, a lot of good can be done. With audio, visual and online courses, he also has a weekly podcast featuring over 70 captivating topics from your how to approach gender to Sophia to smartphones to managing ADHD and more. I had trouble trying to narrow down just one like conversations worth of questions for him. So before we get into it, I've got to say he's he's a doctor, he's a dad, he's a jiu-jitsuist, which we're not quite sure, <laughs> jiu-jitsu practitioner. And it is really such a pleasure to welcome you today to Tall Poppy Talk. Where and how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm blown away by that introduction. I, I think for any of your listeners listening to it, I don't have ADHD. It sounds like I probably do with all that <laughs> all that stuff going on. But yeah, I'm I'm great. I've got my my coffee. Uh, by the way, um, I've got a little kitten, and he might run across the screen from time to time. I'm for some reason I'm not allowed to put him in the other room, so he has to hang out with me. <laughs> so sorry if that interferes with the 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 quality of the the message because <laughs> people might be distracted by my cat well i think that that's a great reason to be distracted if we are how old is this kitten apparently five months we we found him actually on we, we were going for we were supposed to go on a family bushwalk we arrived at the, at the reserve and then this cat just <laughs> just started calling out to us and it had a broken tail and it was looking a bit mangy. So we didn't do our walk. We, we adopted a cat instead. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So we'll keep that in mind and maybe that will add to some wisdom you have to share today. <laughs> I love that. Um, I hope that he features. Now, <laughs> other than apparently new cat, dad there is a lot going on with you in terms of career personal so could we just take a moment and get you to outline your personal and your professional like career journey whatever you define it as yeah sure so uh, I, I i was made in malaysia uh, i was exported to new zealand i was about i think 11 years old at the time oldest of three i grew up in a i'd say a a like lower middle class family. My my dad stayed in Malaysia and sent money to, to us in New Zealand. Mum worked. I had two younger sisters. Yeah, we had fun. Uh, but but yeah, dad was overseas a lot. Um, I always wanted to be a doctor. I was a slow learner, um, believe it or not. 
I, I nearly didn't make it past the fourth form, which I think is year nine or 10. Year 10. Yeah. They call it year 10. It, a teacher also told me she didn't think I could make it. And I think that, uh, I think that fueled me. So I dug deep, you know, I slogged it out, <laughs> slogged it out, slogging, slogging. I read a lot of books. I read as much as I could, um, you know, practice maths exercises after school. I, I was like, I was a nerd for, for, um, for my fifth form in sixth form, sixth form year, seventh form year. But through that time, in order to break up the monotony of, of study, because I was quite a boring, nerdy person that was very angry as well, because I wanted to show my, my teacher that I could do it. So I spent a lot of, lot of time in my bedroom studying, <laughs> trying to shove stuff into my head. Uh, I developed the love of music. I even started writing some awful songs as an outlet. <laughs> Uh, in any case, I, 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 I scraped through school. I got enough grades to get an interview for medical school, which was at Auckland University here in New Zealand. Apparently, I did well at the interview because my, my grades on, only got me just in. Med school was hard slog. Again, if you remember, slow learner. Um, everyone else were like geniuses who didn't have to do any work. Whereas schmoes like me had to <laughs> had to slog it out. Anyway, I graduated. I I then realized after all the reading I had accrued over the years, I was maybe more suited to philosophy and the arts. Uh, I kept up my reading, my music, and I developed an interest in martial arts. I got a little bit jaded in medical work in my first year out of uni, uh, my first job. And I think it was in that environment in which I was working at the time where I started to become a bit dissatisfied with medical work. I, I felt, I, I think it was just the place where I was working. Um, the systems felt quite rigid and inflexible, paternalistic. Uh, and then I discovered psychiatry. I did my first run, six months of it in my first year, working in a psych ward up in Auckland somewhere. And I loved it. I was, I was having really interesting conversations with people that I wouldn't normally meet in my day-to-day -day life. And I think I grew up a lot. Uh, I matured a lot as a, as a human being. I figured that I, I preferred sitting and talking with people than prescribing medicines or <laughs> filling out forms for tests and, and scans and the like. Yeah, and I decided to train as a psychiatrist. I did my general adult psychiatry training. Then I, and then I did child psychiatry, and then I got bored with that. And then I did forensic psychiatry. I, I continued with all my other interests and, and passions uh, with, with um, martial arts and music and, and reading. I'd say I probably apply a fairly broad knowledge base to, to, my, to my work. I'd like to say that I might have carved a little bit of a niche for myself here in in Tauranga. Uh, having trained as a child psychiatrist and a forensic psychiatrist, I, I see a lot of different cases. Uh, I work part-time so I can keep up with my martial arts training as well. But yeah, I've been working in private practice for about six years now after leaving the, the public services. Um, I had my, my children. Sorry, Grace, if I'm being a bit long-winded here. Stop me if I'm 
being a bit long-winded. Never. Uh, I had my my first daughter about 11 years ago, and then we had our second a few years later. I discovered that I really like spending time with them. So that that's why I got into private practice, which has its ups and downs. But, you know, the, and the patients I see are just as complex as those in the public system. But, you know, you get less access to certain resources. So I kind of have to employ more of my energy and resources um, to my private patients because it's just me. I don't have a team. So if it means even just going to someone's house and taking them out for a walk or something like that, well, I don't mean to make it sound like they're, they're, they're dogs that need to be walked, but <laughs> I, hope, I hope it comes across that I'm actually going and walking with my patients rather than taking them out for a walk. Yeah, I like what I do. And just to add a little bit more stress to my life, I have a podcast as well. <laughs> and um, I find that that keeps my, my thinking fresh. It's kind of me in a nutshell. Wow. I want to go back to the beginning and you're saying... I know we'll talk later about tall poppy, but I'm already getting hints of maybe you experiencing it pretty uh, overtly when your teacher's saying like, no, that's not for you. And mm. I do think a lot of people respond to comments like that, either of damn you, I'll show you, I'm going to make it work. But, or it's mm. the opposite where it's like, oh, okay, well, I'm completely discouraged. So obviously you went the let me show you sort of route and mm. continued that path of, I'll put a pin in yeah. that because we'll, we will come back to that later. The other thing I wanted to ask just some basic questions of yeah. forensic psychiatry. What does that mean? Because when I think forensic, I think like bones. <laughs> yes. Yes. CSI, right? CSI. Yeah. So how I look at it is it's basically looking after the mental health of people who have gotten into trouble with the law because they've they've done something that they might not have meant to do because they were unwell. Um, and, and sometimes that means having to try and understand all the determinants that led them to act in a certain way. So, and that's when where the forensic part comes in, where you have to assess a, a particular situation case using, I guess, an objective lens, uh, evaluating data, trying to make sure that that data is credible. Um, and so that means you have to do a little bit of testing. And I guess that that's what I like to think about when, you know, we use the word forensic, you know, it, there's a lot of testing and scientific inquiry, hypothesis making. So for example, if someone has been charged with criminal act, the question from the court or from their lawyer is, well, was this person mentally ill at the time? You forensically have to test some hypothesis. You know, was this person actually unwell? Were they under the influence of drugs? Were they just, was it just a matter of wrong place, wrong time, wrong person? So there's a whole bunch of hypotheses that you can generate about a situation. You test that using the, and, and collect data to confirm or disconfirm your your hypothesis in a in a forensic scientific way but essentially it's about yeah looking after and treating people who have done something that might have been because they were mentally unwell if that makes sense it makes enough sense that i'm understanding i did i had no idea 
that's that's something I think we know about like as a common just like a citizen we understand like I'm thinking again of CSI or some law show where it's like oh but that's stripping it back in the hypothesis and all the kind of not science but the jargon around it and something I found in a lot of your work was that discussion of like empathy which I think yeah I could apply a lot when you're doing uh, forensic analysis in psychiatry so Mm. a phrase I said in the intro to you and I pulled it from your own resources was you're equipping the minds of kids children and adults with the tools to navigate life with empathy as the lantern could you please describe so we've got like empathy sympathy pity for me sometimes those become like synonyms but I know there's distinctions how do they differ with respect to the forensic work which can seem a bit cold and sterile we often sometimes miss the humanity behind behind the case. And I think empathy allows us to, to understand someone else's motivations and intentions and the, the context in which they, they exist. So empathy, in my view, is like an active and relational thing. And it speaks to being able to validate another person's experience. It speaks to appreciating their con- context, you know, their, their intentions as unique as a person and, and that it's understandable why, why they might have done something. Sympathy, I think, is not relational. It doesn't take any sacrifice of mental energy or effort to understand another person because we, we project our own assumptions onto someone else onto their situation and we when we feel sad or sorrowful about a person's case it's us imagining ourselves in their shoes and what's their situation what what's their situation going to be like for us so it's selfish you know it's one-sided our our feelings about a person's situation isn't their feelings <laughs> it's it's our feelings projected onto them so i think that's more sympathy. Empathy is more looking at a person's situation for what it is, accepting where they are, not necessarily looking to judge it or change it. And then pity, I think, is sympathy, but with a patronizing, condescending condescending slant, if that makes sense. Yes, I love what you say. Sympathy is projecting essentially our emotions onto someone else, and it's like our feelings, not theirs, whereas empathy is actually like putting yourself in their situation and I can imagine with what you do when it's forensic psychiatry is a hundred percent that like if someone's maybe committed a crime or done an act empathy is like oh why did they do that what got them there what's the reasoning yes yeah sometimes it's quite hard to 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 step outside of our own feelings you know when you hear something that might be quite disturbing it does, yeah, it does take a little bit of energy, I think, to just stop, step back and put ourselves in that person's shoes, but imagining what it's like for them as that person rather than what it's like for us in that position, if that makes sense. <laughs> I think, it, no, it does make sense. And even if we put mm. it into like a really superficial or not superficial, just a really simple example, um, mm. like, in like a family dynamic right like maybe someone's been doing the dishes in the kitchen and they've been doing it all for a while and they're tidying up everyone's mess and then 
you know, their sibling comes in and puts a glass down. And then we get the person who's been doing all these dishes is like disproportionately frustrated with them. Yes. And the sibling, this is an interaction that's probably happened. The sibling's like, whoa, I just put this one glass down. But the empathy is putting yourself in that other person's role who's been doing the dishes. And it's like, why is everyone just piling these on me? Like understanding that's why they responded the way they did. Is that kind of yeah I, I that I think yes that's that's right I so to extend that picture even further you might hear a, a grown-up in the picture come and say to that person that's grumbling about doing the dishes you know back in my day uh when we used to do the dishes we used to do the dishes barefoot in the snow that's how we used to do the dishes so you shouldn't complain it's like you know so it it's kind of like okay so Yes, you are putting yourself in the young person's shoes. You're doing the dishes, but the context now is different. And the person we're talking about has different characteristics, you know, different personality, different challenges, different strengths, different limits. So that adult saying that <laughs> that stuff, that condescending stuff, isn't actually empathizing. You know, they're doing something else. Yes, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, we oh, we've heard that we've all heard those phrases. Oh, in my day, or this and that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. That's, that's brilliant. <laughs> and then on that same vein, a little bit, something that really piqued my interest, and I'd love for you to explain more, is this whole idea of these ground rules for empathetic empathetic discipline. What does yeah. that mean? So it's, I guess, it's a term that. I wouldn't say it's an original term, but I think it's quite it's quite challenging to to teach people how to empathize. So when you ask people, you know, how how do I empathize? And most people will say, well, you imagine yourself in other people's shoes, which is is sort of like a surface level understanding. But I think to really do it well. I think there's certain components that we have to understand. It's taken me a few years to try and work out, well, what, what are, the, are those key elements? And so when I, when I talk about ground rules for em, em, empathic discipline, I'm talking about certain key concepts that you, we need to understand in order to empathize effectively. Some people do it naturally, and I, I don't think they realize what they're actually doing. But when you actually break down what they're actually doing live with another person, you'll notice that they're, they're, they're using and exemplifying certain principles, which I've tried, I've tried to package it into a, a cohesive system or model. In, in essence, empathy, in my view, is about connecting well with people. You know, we all have the equipment and the hardware to do it. But I think for many of us, uh, we've missed the software updates. <laughs> and I think one key to develop your, your ability to connect is to learn to use all your senses. You know, you were talking earlier about, I'm not sure if you captured it in the recording, about sport and, you know, going for a bike ride where you're mindful and present and engaged in what you're doing at the time. I think in order to really connect with a person, we have to be fully present in the moment with them. You know that 
sensation you get when you click with another person, you know, you, you kind of gel with them, you kind of know what each other are thinking, you kind of finish each other's sentences. It's some kind of intangible force, magnetism, you know, that it, if you have that connection, it allows you to also adjust yourself in relation to their response to you. In terms of ground rules, there are these concepts that to, to understand, I think, to, 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 to connect well with the person. And um, I've got this audio course, which I've tried to put together to help parents uh, with their, their children's misbehavior. Because I think once parents can understand the, the problems that generated that misbehavior, they have an easier time working out how to solve the problem. And so then you get less misbehavior, if that makes sense. And it's hard to, like, I can see you struggling to say it because that's why there's a whole course on it. You can't answer something that large of a question, like what's the empathetic discipline strategy, ground rules. <laughs> I know that that's way too much to ask in one go. <laughs> so to your point, there are greater resources to find, but it does touch upon, like, when I, when I thought about the discipline, it's almost like a, yeah, a parent to a child or a teacher to a child or whatever. Is there similarities in terms of how empathy impacts like adults to adult relationships? Is it similar or is it quite different? I think it's the same. And obviously some, some adults are more skillful than others in, in, in connecting with other people. I think with adults, where you might see a, a breakdown in relationship or if you notice co conflicts with, within adult relationships. Um, if you show me a conflict between adults, you, you usually see some deficit in empathic skill or some disconnect between the two individuals in, in conflict. You know, and you see this in, in road rage, you know, in uh, crime, like we talked about before, you know, grievances at work. Patients complaining about their doctors, not understanding them. You know, there's always this disconnect. And I think ground rules for empathic discipline. I, so when I say discipline, I don't mean um, c correcting behavior. Discipline, I mean, as a way of doing life. So a practice, you know, maybe, maybe I should have called it ground rules for empathic practice rather than discipline because it, it probably sounds better. Probably makes more sense to call it a practice i think than a discipline yeah that yeah. makes sense like um someone might say there's a discipline within like jiu-jitsu or there's yeah. disciplines within swimming like whether it's breaststroke backstroke like i had misunderstood that actually you, you, thank you because you've motivate mo motivated me to go and change that so i'm going to change it because <laughs> that yeah it makes more sense to call it empathic practice i think oh great thank you great. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy happy to help as i'm more more maturing myself and cemented in the adult bracket like mm. oh there's less um i guess i call it cutting off slack or the benefit of the doubt because when you get into mm. the adult stage adults are probably less likely to be like oh they're just a kid or they're young that empathy starts to fade a little bit because it's like, come on, grow up, be an adult. That's mm. a phrase I think we hear more when you, especially when I'm in like my 
I guess you call it my mid-20s, but mid-20s mm. where it's like, all right, grow up and some of that empathy maybe gets removed because mm. you should know better. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. Wow, yes. this is this I, is interesting. I mean, I, I fall into the same kind of way of thinking and it's it's not always, it's not automatic, you know, being able to turn on that empathic switch, it, it, it does. I think, I think I, cause I work with kids. When I come home, I, the switch goes off. Like uh, my wife will tell you that, but when, when I'm at work, work, you know, it's automatic. I can switch it on. There is a way to turn the switch on and it just, it just means being mindful of certain principles, which we've, we've talked about a little bit of this, but um, I talk a lot, a lot about it. Is it easier, I ask, for you know, kids to mm. learn emotional intelligence skills than adults? And if you're talking about that switch, yeah. is it easier to, yeah, just learn what the switch is, mm. how to use it, emotional skills as a kid, than it is when you yeah grow up? I would say it's not necessarily the case that it. Mm, I think it's the same for adults and kids. You know, some some are more naturally gifted in that way and i think we all know people who are just naturally empathic and then others who are less so but i think we're all born with the hardware but some of us just need software updating so i mean you, you imagine like well, i was talking about my cat before some of us are cat people some are not you know when you're interacting with a kitten or a cute baby or something, we automatically adjust our tone of voice, our facial expressions, our body language to, to match the, the baby's rhythm or the, the kitten's rhythm. And I, I think as we grow up, I think it's, it's easy, easy to forget that in the messiness of, of life, you know, we get so busy and caught up with our own stuff. Sometimes we forget to stop and slow down and be present. So I think one principle is being present, you know, being present in the moment with the person fully, completely being mindful of the other in that moment. So you can notice all those subtle shifts in another person's emotional state or, uh, you know, you, you, you learn how to read a person better when you're fully present. Just like, I guess, when you're riding your mountain bike, right, you sort of have, you have to kind of be fully present in order to read the terrain and adjust your speed or your, you know, change your gears, all that sort of stuff. But I think it also requires some humility and the ability to reflect and learn from mistakes. I think the more skillful ones have the ability to, to do that. And so that, that's another aspect of developing your empathic discipline or practice is to learn how to self-reflect. In terms of self-reflecting, I'm all about... Yeah tangible skills not tangible skills tangible things people can do so if someone's yeah. listening and they're like great I want to self-reflect do I need to just sit in a room and think about it like what's something someone could do to become yeah. more self-reflective one thing that becomes apparent when I talk to people about um, self-reflection is people shy away from talking about mistakes or flaws or shortcomings. So I usually say to people, when, when you're starting to learn how to self-reflect, the easiest thing to do is to find something that you don't like about 
what you're doing, um, you know, find a problem that you, you have. If you can't find a problem, someone else, if you ask someone else what your problem is, they might, they'll probably be able to tell you. <laughs> so you, you have to have some thick skin as well. But however way you do it, find a problem that you have and, and use that as a starting point for your self-reflection practice. So it means you have to learn to describe the, the problem with words. It sounds a little bit contrite, but I think language is really a key part in trying to understand yourself. Because uh, when you can describe something well, I think then it allows you to think about that problem well. You know, because if problems are nebulous and difficult to make sense of and describe, then it becomes quite difficult to generate solutions for that problem because you want to make things concrete. And I think words help to, to make us visualize a problem and how we solve that problem. You know, words, I think, promote clarity. So find a problem, describe it well, start there. And then once you have a good understanding of the problem, I think you can then start to uh, work out, well, what are the factors that made that problem possible? How, how you know, what, what did I do? What was the environment in which that problem arose? And then what was the effect of that problem on me and other people? Once you have a good idea of what those things are, you can then start to generate some potential ways of addressing the problem by looking at the factors that drove the problem, if that makes sense. Because sometimes I think it's not the problem that's the problem. It's, it's all the little bits that come before the problem that, that's the issue. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking like, I have tried a lot and I'm getting there. I've been very self-reflective, but the hardest thing is to admit it's the same with bigger issues when people maybe allowing yourself to change your mind, to change your position or your opinion on something. Yeah. In some ways you have to admit like, oh, maybe I, not that I had it wrong, but admitting that maybe I didn't like how I did something in the past, or even if I reflect on like if a situation went sour and when you reflect mm. back on it and maybe the role you play in it, you have to mm. accept. And that's what's I think kind of tough, at least for me, is to be like, oh, Grace, you weren't super, you weren't your best self in that moment. And to have to actually admit like, I didn't like that. That's the self-reflective part that sometimes I'll try to avoid because it's confronting. But to yeah. your point about like, I journal, that's what I do a lot of. So I don't even have to say it, but it is written. Um, yes. And I guess I'm seeing those words. I'm like, oh, yeah. And for me, that's a really good way to reflect on something in the moment or on the day. Mm. But I'll just shut the journal. And when I'm feeling ready for it, I'll go back mm. and I might read it and be like, okay, we can address this now. But I love yeah. what you're saying about the self-reflection. It's like, it's, it requires inner dialogue. I like the, the journal idea. I, I have to admit, I, I'm not very good with journaling. I need to get better at that. I think you're right, this inner dialogue um, and also seeking feedback from people and, and taking it on the chin, I think, you know, I think, I think some thick skin is required when we do self-reflection. 
I'm sure I don't have to tell you, uh, you know, with, with sports people, I'm sure you're your own worst critic. <laughs> you know, you don't, don't need someone else criticizing you. You've got <laughs> that inner, inner dialogue. Yeah, journaling is a great tool. I need to do it more. I need to recommend it more. Thank you again, Grace. Number two, you're two for two now. <laughs> Thank you. The, the part though you said about sport, I'm sure it could apply for people in school or in work. Mm. It's like in athletics, a lot of the time there's very measurable, tangible, external things that we can, I know I'm getting faster because my mm. time is increasing or my split is getting better or same for academics. Like yes. I know my studying is improving because I'm seeing it in my grades where something like empathy or yeah. um, one of the, those like inside emotions yeah. and skills, there's nothing really to measure it up against. And that's difficult for yeah. me. For me as a sports person, I'm like, yes. can I test? Can someone test me? Am I more empathetic than <laughs> I was yesterday? Like, Yeah, yeah. yes. Yes, there are a few metrics which... And I do accept that I think my terms for these will probably evolve over time. But uh, one, one way I think of measuring how well you're connecting with another, with another person, there's actually a few metrics that I've been thinking about. One, one is what I call a um, duration of utterance. So how, how long someone speaks to you for is, a, is one, one metric out of a few that you can use to measure whether your conversation is sticky and whether you're vibing with someone. Because, you know, for, for example, and this might not be the best example, but I, I'm, I'm sure you, you might have had these kinds of conversations before where, you know, you say something and then the other person doesn't really seem all that engaged or interested. And, you know, you feel like you're not quite getting to them. And then they might not say so much. They might look away. They might, they just seem disinterested. And usually if you measure the duration of utterance, which is the amount of time they spend speaking to you, that's one, one measure. So sometimes, so you longer is better than shorter. <laughs> I think empathy yeah. is huge when we're considering this concept, yes. but tall poppy syndrome Please, in your own words, could you describe it and your experience yeah. with it? I like to call it um, something else. I call it like a pathological envy disorder, uh, but it's not endemic to New Zealand. You know, I think it happens in many places and cultures, which I think operate as what I call like closed systems where, you know, it's, it's isolated, disconnected from the wider community or world. I think about what it might have been like for, you know, pre prehistoric man, you know, surviving in small tribes, you know, they needed a certain set of rigid rules and behaviors to suit the needs so that they survived as a tribe and outsiders aren't always trusted. I don't know if you watched The Walking Dead, but, um, you know, like, <laughs> but, but there are these groups of survivors that, you know, for, for years they've learned to trust each other and when outsiders come into the show, they always treat them with mistrust and there's always paranoia and they don't like how the other, the, the, the outsiders operate because it's different to how the group operates. You know, it takes a long time for outsiders to be accepted and trusted. 
And the only way that change happens, uh, so the outsider can't make change happen, it ha change has to happen from the inside. I think there's an element of groupthink with tall poppy syndrome. Uh, I, think, I think I've experienced it in places where groupthink is particularly strong and it tends to be in small places, small in, ge in geographical size, but also small in, it sounds a bit derogatory to say, but maybe closed-mindedness. You know, it's not easy to do things different, you know, in those settings. And I think when people do something different, they're treated as an outsider, they're not trusted, or people might envy what they're doing because they're doing something outside of the group and the group feel that they're not able to do something different because it feels too threatening. And I think they, they feel, there's, there's an element, I think, of jealousy as well. Broadly speaking, I think, I think it's about envy. We know it, but when you're asked to just describe it, mm. it's not like a one-sentence definition and everyone's got mm. their own. Like if I asked you in three weeks, you might give me something different and I ask you in three years, yeah. you'll definitely give me something different. It's yeah. an, ev an evolving term. Mm. When I tie it to empathy, I am probably thinking of tall poppy more and my experience with it is tall poppy in myself where I'm like, mm. settle, uh. settle down. Let's not get too big or let's maybe not dream too big. Let's not do this thing. So I really want to know from you is how someone can give empathy to themselves and what's the value in that. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, a lot of us, you know, many people, we feel and think critically about ourselves. We may be negative about ourselves, uh, our, the world around us, our past, our future. I think empathy for oneself is not the same as condoning or favoring or disfavoring things that we do because what we do is just what we do. And there's a reason for that. So again, I think applying the same principles of how you might empathize with someone else in understanding their behavior and how their behavior got to be. You know, for example, if you're not happy with your performance or something like that at work or at school or in sport, I think having empathy for yourself means you can objectively zoom out, uh, look at the factors that contributed to underperformance. I don't like that word underperformance. I kind of, because it, it kind of implies that there's a standard for performance, whereas we all sit on the spectrum and we all, anyway, <laughs> but I, I'll call it underperformance. And, and I think breaking it down like that is much more constructive. It allows us to, I know this sounds circular, but it, it gives us time to empathize with our own situation where, oh, okay, so I had, these factors that contributed to me underperforming in inverted commas, it then means, okay, why, why did those factors culminate? What were the conditions that made my underperformance possible? It's like, oh, maybe because I didn't have enough sleep or, oh, okay, maybe because I wasn't fully present in the moment at that stage. So it's about, I think, accepting things for what they are, but at the same time, not dwelling on the past, which is quite a tricky thing for humans to get 
past. But I like to say, you know, we, we understand ourselves by looking past, but we, we still have to live forward. So, so that's why I think this, this whole idea of empathy should apply in our case as well. And if we, if we do it properly, we'd be, like I said before, breaking, breaking things down, seeing things objectively, taking the emotion out of it. I suppose it's about learning. It's about learning about ourselves, uh, not in a cold, sterile way, but in a curious way, because the learning then might potentially take us further than where we, we are today, you know? To answer your question, yeah, empathy, absolutely. I think uh, we can definitely give empathy to ourselves. And I think if we can have empathy for ourselves, I think it's a great way to fix our performance issues. A last sort of thing which feeds off that is there's so much information, right? Especially yeah. chat GPT, all these things are freaking me out. But <laughs> there's yeah. an the environment of information we're in is just stimulation there's noise um and I mean yeah. that in the sense of just like anywhere you look or if you get on the internet there's things coming at you that we can yeah. absorb whether that's uh, opinions conflicting opinions there's an endless yeah. source of materials and parenting if we go back to that whole idea of what you do with child psychiatry like parenting is one of the yeah. most contended upon areas of expertise even yeah from one grandparent set to the other grandparent set let alone the yes. internet so how can people navigate this ocean of resources and find mm. credible strategies that are going to work for them and their situation i would say to anyone out there listen to the tall poppy podcast and listen to all grace lewis's stuff because it's good stuff and listen to our guests i think um i i i yeah i agree there's so much stuff out there that i think we also forget ourselves as a resource i think it's it's helpful to treat ourselves like walking sci science labs you know we we move through life we experience life i find that quite energizing to think about my life as a bit of a science experiment because it means it's quite you know I, I i get to have fun testing things out and seeing if things work one way or another so that's one concept that i like to think about when i get bombarded with a whole bunch of things that people want me to read or you know people ask me to check this out that out and then when i get overwhelmed say well where do i start it's good to kind of turn it back and look at our own experience right here and now so look at your own resource. In a world of resource, the best resource is probably yourself. <laughs> and that's, that's another goal that I have with the material that I've put out is that to help people learn from themselves rather because th I, I think people are the best experts for their own situation and only you know your situation. I think it's good to learn how to learn and learn how to make sense of yourself and if but if you have certain key concepts and constructs i think you can do that really well and you might not need all those resources to answer your your, your question more broadly i think there's a there's a investor famous investor called charlie munger you you might know who he is he talks about having a, a lattice work of mental models it helps you to to filter out noise and and separate the wheat from the chaff so to speak so i would say you know read broadly across various disciplines, 
you'll begin to recognize certain patterns in various various things that people say across disciplines, that there's similarities in processes and mental models. Because, well, I mean, all these disciplines are trying to make sense of, of the world. And I think there are patterns, patterns that someone in engineering might be able to describe better than someone in psychiatry. So sometimes I might borrow a concept from engineering. Sometimes I might borrow a concept from jujitsu. So I think, yeah, be curious, uh, read broadly, and then it helps you to filter out what's BS and what's not when you look at different courses or learning materials and also self-reflect. So then you know what, what might gel with you. I think what you connect with um, you don't know what's going to connect with you un until you actually know yourself better. And I think trust is important as well. You know, you have to test things out and discard what's useful and what's not. If you're starting out on your knowledge journey, I definitely recommend learn from other people's mistakes, read biographies, read a lot, and self-reflect. I think those, th those are the best resources in my view. Yeah, I like that stripping that back and the self-reflection, listening, listening, absorbing. I love podcasts. I love, I'm not as good mm. on reading. So however you want to absorb it, some people watch it, yeah. they listen, they talk about yes. it. I think talking about it is great. That's why I love doing the podcast. Um, same as yes. you with yes. yours. Now, before I have my little sign off fun question, I just wanted yeah. to give you the floor for a moment. If there was any final words, anything coming in the pipeline that you wanted to share to people? You don't yeah. have, have to, but is there? Yeah. yeah. Well, thank, thanks, Grace. Um, hmm. I, well, I'm working now on another course, which is kind of like a, probably the, a, uh, it goes deeper into this idea of connection. At the moment, I'm calling it the foundations of human connection. Sounds a little bit esoteric, but basically it's a sort of course on how to connect with people, which is aimed at parents, but I think the principles in there would work for anyone. I don't know, people can look out for it if they want. If they're interested, they can jump on my website and have a look around. Well, then the last question I have, and I ask everyone this as a little fun sign off to sometimes lighten the mood if it needs to happen, yeah. but... If you had to have just one meal for the rest of your life, and this is breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what is it going to be? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> ooh, ramen. Spicy pork ramen. With an egg? With an egg, kimchi, every day, all day. I could have that all day. Yep. That is probably the most on board I can get with any of them I've answered because I love ramen and maybe a side of bao buns if I can uh -huh. if, I, if I'm extending it yes. I think that that needs yes. to happen oh that yeah <laughs> I'm getting hungry <laughs> oh my gosh I just want to say thank you and I know that I tried to touch upon a bunch of things that you've literally spent years and years and years studying so thank you for uh, entertaining me and trying to squeeze some of that in I know and really push people to check out the resources you have online and to listen and like we said so many different ways to access it but just thank you for spending your time with me I know it was so valuable and I learned a lot from it and I appreciate you coming on today
Oh, such a pleasure. I, I learned a lot from talking with you as well. And I hope that we get to connect again later on down the track. Thank you so much for listening to Tall Poppy Talk. We'll see you next time. Feel free to check us out on socials, YouTube, and the website.